If you were with us last Sunday, we finished our Advent uh, sermon series. We were going through really just the last couple chapters of the book of Revelation. Starting next Sunday, we're going to do our January sermon series. For the last two, three years, we've been doing the same sermon series every January, where we take those four Sundays and we look at how the gospel of Jesus Christ brings greater social, economic, spiritual justice in our society. But today, we're not there yet. So you got the one-off with me. But don't worry, there is intentionality to this. I think that the first psalm particularly grounds us this time of year better than anything else we could be reading. So with your Bibles open, read with me the words of the first psalm. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Are you happy? I know it might seem like a bit of a silly question to ask a room full of mature adults, but seriously, are, are you happy? You know, if you were to look at the totality of your life right now, would you say you're happy, thriving, living this full life? I mean, this is kind of what we expect this time of year, isn't it? I understand for a lot of us, the holidays can be a particularly difficult time, a lonely time of year, but for others of us, uh, the sentimentality of the season can bring this kind of momentary sense of happiness. Maybe you get a gift uh, that you had been wanting for a long time. Kids, you got two weeks off from school. You get to eat during this time of year more cookies than medically safe without one single person giving you an odd look about it. It's the way we talk to each other this year. We say, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. We sing songs about it. Uh, that with every Christmas card I write, may your days be merry and bright and all your Christmases be white. Now, we're not getting the white Christmas here in Florida, but what about the rest of it? Merry and bright? Happy and thriving? Will that describe you right now? You know, if you had to place your life on this spectrum where on one end is this tree, green, flourishing, bursting with ripe fruit, and on the other end of the spectrum is this dry, dusty, barren tree, much like the dead Christmas tree that I paid $65 for last year, where would you put yourself? I mean, this is the week to think about it, isn't it? If you've ever made a New Year's resolution, you're in part saying there's some place in my life that's not green and ripe and flourishing, but really is pretty dry and barren. 
someplace where I'm not feeling this thriving, this happiness, where I'm feeling instead this, this low-grade discontent. Psalm 1 is a psalm about happiness. All right? In it, the psalmist lays out two opposing, inescapable ways to live. Right? One leads to happiness, thriving, a full life. The other leads to discontent, destruction. And to figure out which path you're on, the difference maker between the two is the role that God's word has in your life. And what the psalmist is trying to do in the first psalm is he's trying to wake us up. He's trying to compel us, inspire us to choose the wise way, to let God's word direct us to what we all want, whether we think it's possible or not. A thriving, full life, happiness. And so in order to see what the psalmist is talking about here, I think there's actually three different paths that we got to look at this morning. we got to look at the happy way, the unhappy way, and then third, your way. So start with me first, the happy way. Um, to under, really understand the first psalm, you've got to understand the first word that starts it all off, because it really sets a tone for it, describes this entire life that the psalm is showing us we can have. Um, probably every translation you're looking at starts off Psalm 1 by saying, blessed is the one who dot, 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 on and on it goes. But that's actually not the best way to translate the word that starts Psalm 1. Uh, there is a Hebrew word from which we get the word blessing. Uh, that's talking about God giving his divine favor, giving his divine love towards someone. But that's not actually the word that's used here to start Psalm 1. No, the word that starts Psalm 1, it's not talking about me receiving God's favor or God's blessing. Uh, instead, it's talking about a certain way of being, of living in the world where you are thriving, you are flourishing, you are living life to the full. Uh, the difference between the two, is a matter of point of view. So to talk about blessing is, talking about, is coming from the point of view of God looking down on someone who's getting his favor, getting his love. But the word that starts Psalm 1 isn't coming from the point of view of God to man. It's coming from the point of view of person to person. What Psalm 1's talking about at the start isn't God looking down at you. It's me looking at you and saying, this person has it. This person gets it. This person has this really flourishing, thriving life. This person's truly happy. And it describes then this happy way that it's talking about for the rest of the psalm. It describes it two different ways. First, negatively. It says, blessed or thriving, flourishing. Happy is the one who doesn't walk in step with the wicked, which means kind of taking their advice on things. Uh, or stand in the way that sinners take, which means kind of joining in what they're doing. Or sit in the company of mockers, which means taking on, sharing their same attitude toward life. And now what this psalm isn't saying, so if you're here today, you're a Christian, it's not saying that you can't have any sort of meaningful relationships with anybody who's not. That's not what it's saying at all. No, what the first psalm is saying here is that that thriving, flourishing life, that happiness that we all want, isn't found in immersing yourself in relationships, social circles, political parties, 
whose view of a thriving life is different than the one God has for you, to the point that they now shape what you think, how you act, where you get your sense of belonging in a way that's different from how God's designed you to ultimately flourish. So it describes the happy way negatively, then positively. First, through an action. It says in verse two, blessed is the one though, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Um, now, in the Old Testament, you know, when that phrase, the law of the Lord, comes up, can mean, very, can mean uh, multiple different things. Um, sometimes it can be referring to just God's commands. Here, though, I think the best way to understand it is it's talking about all of the Bible, all of Scripture. And it says uh, that the happy, flourishing person meditates on God's word day and night, meaning constantly. And when we hear that word meditate, I think probably most of us hear it a little bit differently than the Bible is using it here. I think when we hear the word meditate, uh, we more think of it through an Eastern uh, context of meditation, which is focused on emptying the mind, centering yourself. Uh, But when the Bible talks about meditation, especially in the Old Testament, it's actually not talking about emptying the mind, it's talking about filling your mind. Uh, so Eugene Peterson, who is an author, uh, I think he, he captures the idea of biblical meditation perfectly. Um, when he describes how when they used to live in Montana, they had a family dog who would go out and occasionally the dog would come across a dead deer in the woods. And so the dog would take one of the bones from it and bring it home and would spend hours just chewing and gnawing and licking and sniffing out every little part of the bone to the point that they would notice these strange kind of growling and grumbling noises coming out of their dog all day. And then when nighttime came, the dog would bury the bone somewhere in the yard. And then when the next morning came, he'd uncover the bone and back at it, just chewing and gnawing and finding every little part of it, obsessing over it. Um, Now, our dog isn't much of an outside dog, if you've ever met her, but growing up, I had a cat uh, who occasionally would get a mouse, and he would sit on our front porch with it and just kind of crunch, crunch, crunch away on the mouse. So I think I understand what Peterson's talking about here. What Peterson's saying is that biblical meditation is treating God's word like a dog does to a bone. In fact, It's the same word that's used here to talk about meditation that's used in the book of Isaiah to talk about a lion eating the bones of its prey. Meditation doesn't mean emptying the mind. It means filling it. It means mulling over every part of God's word, chewing on it, obsessing over it, flipping it over, finding a new spot, and then diving in there, but not to merely find some sort of moral guidance or to pick up some new facts or to get some sort of emotional boost when you need it. No, ultimately, biblical meditation should bring you to a personal encounter with the God who's revealing himself to you through his word, one that leads to this deeper repentance, this more confident trust and faith in God, so that now, through meditating on his word, God's word, not the news network you watch, not your political party, not what your friends comment on Facebook, 
not your Instagram feed. God's word is the thing that shapes what you think, how you act, where you get your true sense of belonging. And when we do, the Psalm second gives us an image of what we become. He says that person who meditates on God's word is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. And the image that it's describing here is of a tree uh, that was in a dry, dusty desert place that's actually literally uh, uh, transplanted to this place where it's right next to this irrigation channel where it gets this never-ending flow of water, making it flourish into this beautiful, ripe, green tree. And what the psalmist is saying here is that when we meditate on God's word, we become like the tree. We flourish. We become this green, ripe person. Not in this sense of health and wealth. Not in this sense of comfort, security, everything going easy. We are on this always upward trajectory toward greater financial, relational, career success. No, not outward prosperity, inward prosperity. That we have this sense of satisfaction, that you have this sense of happiness that no circumstance in life can take away from you. That as verse three says, your leaf doesn't wither. That the ups and downs of your career, the relationships that come and go, what other kids say about you at school, none of that can take away this full, thriving heart that's rooted in God's word and is drawing up from it every day. So this is what the first psalm says is the happy way. And is that you? Do you feel like that has just described your life perfectly. Green, ripe, rooted in God's word, full of this deep satisfaction that not only you, but everyone else around you benefits from? Or do you maybe see a little bit of yourself in who he describes next? Uh, In verses four and five, the psalmist describes for us the unhappy way. And he does it first by giving us a parallel metaphor to what he's just described. In verse four, he says, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Now in that time, ancient Israel, when you were harvesting grain, there was this outer husk, this chaff that was on the outside of the grain. And so to get it off so you could use the grain, you'd take this pitchfork and you would throw the grain up in the air and the chaff Now, the husk was virtually weightless. So you'd throw it up in the air, the wind would come, and it would blow the chaff away, the grain would fall to the ground, and you were left with what you could actually use. Uh, And the psalmist is using this metaphor here uh, of the people in verse 1 who aren't rooted in God's word, but are actually resisting God's word. He uses this metaphor of chaff to contrast them with the happy person who he describes as this green, ripe, flourishing tree. And the difference between the two isn't as much between the nature, but the state of them. All right, one, it's pumped full of water. It's rooted, it's secure, it's stable. The other is blown around by the wind. It's rootless, it's insecure, it's unstable. 
One is useful not just to itself, but everyone else around it, right? It, it bears fruit in season. Everyone benefits from this tree. The other is completely useless and thrown aside. In other words, what the first psalm is saying is that when we're rooted in God's word, we get this inner satisfaction, this happiness, this fullness in life that no circumstance can take from us, that everyone around us benefits from. But on the other side, when we're resistant to God's word, when we're like the scoffers in verse 1, the mockers, who don't really care what it has to say, or when we do read God's word, but it's, we read it merely just to get some sort of moral guidance, or we read it just to learn some sort of new facts about God, or we pick it up just when we need this emotional boost to get us through the day, when we're not meditating on it like a dog with a bone, for this personal encounter with the living Christ, though outwardly you may be prospering, inwardly you're poor. Outwardly, to everyone else around you, you might look like this green, ripe, flourishing tree, but on the inside, you're lifeless chaff. You're not living this thriving, happy life. No, instead you have this low-grade, simmering discontent. And now that might sound a little unfair and a little unrealistic because what this psalm seems to be saying is that if you want to live the full life, if you want this happy, thriving life, the only place that you can find it is with God. Is that really true? Why can't we find happiness in some other place than God? In a lot of ways, uh, that's the question that we're trying to answer right now as a society, as a culture. Um, you see, in the, the Western world, for kind of the first 15, 1600 years, the biblical understanding uh, that happiness, flourishing, was actually the byproduct of first a relationship with God. That was kind of the dominant understanding. But then in the 16, 17, 1800s, this shift happened, uh, whereby the emphasis in life went from being on the transcendent, on being something beyond us, to now being solely on the imminent, on the here and now. And we shifted from finding happiness in something beyond us, in God, to instead finding happiness right here in the things of this life. That could be possessions, accomplishments, relationships, career, whatever it is. The message that we're bombarded with today is happiness is in the here and now. Happiness is to be found in the things right here in this life. It's out there. Go and get it. But is that working? Is that really making you happy? Or are we maybe slightly out of touch with the magnitude of our discontent? With the more chaff-like nature of our pursuit of happiness? Uh, Tim Keller, he used to be a pastor up in New York. Um, he describes, I think, really well, different places that we can all find ourselves on our pursuit of happiness. Some of us, we're young and we're hopeful that it is out there. Whatever it is, the thing that's going to make us happy, the thing that's going to give us this thriving, full life. Maybe that's the right partner. 
Maybe that's uh, the right career, the right status, the right income, the right kids. We think, if I can just get this thing, it'll all make sense. My life will feel happy and meaningful and thriving. And if, if we're discontent in the moment, that's okay, because we can say, well, it doesn't matter. It's, it's out there. I can see it, and eventually I'm going to get it. Others of us, you know, that was maybe us five, ten years ago, uh, but it just never really happened. We never really found it, that thing that was going to give us this fullness, this thrivingness in life. And so what happens is we get resentful, we get bitter, we start to blame obstacles in our life, we start to blame things that, that we think have kept us from really finding what will make us happy. You know, have you ever said, you know, I would have such a better life right now if it wasn't for this person, this situation, this decision that was made. But others of us, especially in a place like Winter Park, where we are successful, talented, driven people, we're able to push past those roadblocks. We're able to get what it is we're looking for, that, those accomplishments, those possessions, those things that we thought would really make us happy, really make us thrive. And yet when we do, there's still something missing. There's this problem that happens, that we've arrived, we've got what we thought would finally give us this full life, and yet it's not quite enough. And so what happens is we end up needing a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more of that to maintain this semi-level of happiness in our life. Until if, we're, uh, if we carry that out far enough, if we're honest enough with ourselves about that, we'll finally get to this place where we think, you know what, it doesn't exist. A full, thriving, flourishing life, happiness, it doesn't exist. Those things that I thought would make me happy, that's just a myth. We get cynical to everyone else around us. We become self-condemning and start to blame ourselves, all because we want something that nothing in this life can ultimately give us. And now that might sound a little pessimistic, but is it? You let experience be the judge. See, I know that you can find yourself somewhere on that spot on those different places that we listed out, because I can. And what Psalm 1's ultimately showing us is that this isn't just a cultural symptom. This is a heart sickness. Our chaff-like pursuit of happiness, where we're rootless, we're unstable, we're insecure, we're, we have this kind of low-grade, simmering discontent in our lives, is ultimately because we've become resistant to God's word. So we've looked at the happy way. We've looked at the unhappy way. Now let's talk about your way. Which path are you following today? You see, this is what we need to decide right now. Because here in verse 6, Psalm 1 shows us finally, drives us finally to choose the thriving way, the happy way in life by showing us how these two different ways, the happy way, the unhappy way, part, not just now, but forever. 
All right, after everything he said about these two inescapable, opposing ways to live, one that leads to thriving, this inner prosperity, this happiness that no circumstance in life can take away from you, and this other to this instability, this discontent that no circumstance in life can ultimately resolve, he says in verse six, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. What he's giving us here is the outcome. These two different ways of living. The righteous, which is the thriving person, person who's full of this deep inner happiness, who's rooted in God's word, God will watch over, he says. Literally, you could translate the word, God will know their ways. Not just in a way of being informed by them, but in a way of identifying with them. That God watches over this person with such intense care of their lives that he is literally as if he's walking right alongside of them. Then he says the wicked or the discontent people who aren't rooted in God's word but are in their own way resistant to it. He says this way will ultimately lead to destruction. Here and now by just a life of further discontent the more honest we allow ourselves to be about it but ultimately for eternity. He says in verse 5, therefore the wicked won't stand in the judgment, being the judgment at the end of time. In other words, these two ways that he's described here, they're not running parallel towards the same thing. No, they are parting forever. One to life, the other to destruction. And what Psalm 1 is saying is it's A or B, no third choice, and you're on one right now. So which one is it? Honestly, today? Watered tree or windblown chaff? Uh, Stable, secure, or unstable, insecure? Flourishing life that everyone else around you benefits from or unsatisfied life that everyone else around you needs to make better? Happy or discontent? I know it might be kind of hard to discern maybe just walking in today. So forget about everyday life for a second here. Think about when suffering comes into your life. When that happens, how do you feel? Do you feel rootless, unstable, literally blown around by the wind? Or do you find that in the midst of it, as verse 3 says, your leaf doesn't wither? that despite the pain, despite the confusion of the circumstances, you have this inner prosperity that no circumstances around you can ultimately take away. You see, we're all on one of these two paths. And what the first psalm is trying to do, it's trying to wake us up. It's trying to compel us right now to choose the thriving life. So how do we make the happy way your way? Well, ultimately, you've got to meditate on God's final word. Hebrews 1 starts by saying, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these latter days, he has spoken to us by his son. Meaning that Jesus Christ came into our world to be 
God's final word to humanity. That's as John 1 said that we looked at on Christmas Eve, the word became flesh and it dwelled, it made its home right among us. That in the life of Jesus, if you read through the gospels, in the life of Jesus, he embodies everything that God has ever revealed about himself in the entire Old Testament and more. That in Jesus, all of God's word finds its fulfillment, finds its perfection, finds its true end. That he's the one The book of Hebrews says Abraham looked toward and longed to see. That Paul in the book of Acts says Moses was ultimately telling the Israelites about. That Jesus himself says when he's resurrected and he meets the disciples on the road to Emmaus that all the Old Testament, all of scripture is ultimately pointing to me. This is what Martin Luther said. The entire scripture deals only with Christ everywhere. And when we meditate on him, when we delight in God's final word, when we plant ourselves by the living waters of Christ, we find the flourishing that the first Psalm promises. How? Because Jesus isn't just God's final word. Jesus is ultimately Psalm 1's flourishing man. Think about it. Jesus was righteous and upright. Jesus uh, never walked uh, in step with the wicked, stood in the way of sinners, sat in the company of mockers. Jesus was this tree planted by water whose abundant life was a benefit to everyone. Jesus delighted in God's word with every part of his being. He meditated on it day and night. In the morning when his disciples were still asleep and couldn't find him. In the evening when he was teaching people to all hours of the night. And they were amazed by him and ultimately on the cross. When he cried out, Psalm 22, as he took on the judgment of Psalm 1 on our behalf. You see, we can't fool ourselves. Left to our own devices, we are all the wicked in Psalm 1. On our own, we can't delight in God's word. Our hearts are naturally bent to resist it. I mean, you can be the most religious person there is. You could be here every Sunday morning, read your Bible like clockwork every day, pass a test on all the theology, all the doctrines, all the names, everything in it. And without the grace of God's Holy Spirit pointing you towards his final word in Christ, you will never truly delight in God's word. See, on our own, we will always find a way to resist his word and to try to find thriving apart from God, but it never works. And so God instead, moved by his love for you, sent his son Jesus to become Psalm 1's flourishing man. And on the cross, as his thriving life came to a tragic, gruesome end, take on the judgment of Psalm 1's wicked sinners that you and me deserved so that through meditating on him, through meditating on God's final word in Jesus Christ, we see the fullest revelation of his grace and love for us. And so that now, by coming to him in faith, not to get happiness, not thinking that God owes us this full life based on our moral record, it'll never be enough. 
No, but coming out of gratitude and love to Christ, God's final word, you become that tree planted by running waters, the house built on the rock, the one who God will watch your, over your ways every day, the one who Jesus Christ is praying for right now. Choose the wise way. Choose the happy way. Live the flourishing life by the grace of Psalm 1's truly flourishing man. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you sent your son Christ, your final word, your greatest revelation of your mercy and love to become Psalm 1's flourishing man and bear the judgment of Psalm 1's wicked sinners that I deserve, that we deserved, so that now through meditating on him, through chewing and mulling over him, to obsessing on him, we can find the way to what we all want, that in you, you show us is possible, a happy and thriving life. Amen.